This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, straying from the path. Tracing the journey of Little Red Riding Hood. So we're doing something a little bit different today. Yes, um, we're going to see how this goes. This is kind of an experiment for us as well as the mm-hmm. listener as well. Obviously, we've talked about folklore and myths and fairy tales, etc. before fairly obliquely without going into like loads and loads of detail. But this is part of a series within the Dissecting Dragon series, if you like. And we're just going to randomly scatter these in. Um, and it's it basically we're trialing something called fairy tales in focus where we look at a specific fairy tale and try and stay on track with just that fairy tale yeah this is where the experimental bit comes in um, and we try and trace back its origins and also trace it forwards because folk tales and fairy tales are continually changing to suit the times in which they're told stories do have to shape shift in order to survive and we thought this might be an interesting thing to do. Now, obviously, Jules and I both have a very avid interest in fairy tales and folklore. Um, and the emphasis really was on the try there, because there is so much crossover that we may end up straying the, from the path a little bit ourselves. But we will do our utmost to make sure that we <laughs> are going in the right direction. Uh, we are. And hopefully, we're gonna hopefully we're gonna try and arrive at grandmother's house in this one at some um, point. <clears throat> never can tell. <laughs> yes. So we're gonna give never this a go. Tell. Obviously, we'd love to hear your feedback. Whether you think this is a good idea, um, or whether you have enjoyed this episode, which is about to come up, please do let us know. Um, so let's get stuck into it, shall we? Yes. Mm. Uh, so if we start with a brief overview of fairy tales, yeah. obviously it's going to be very brief. This is more a case of what categorises a fairy tale. So, I mean, mm. you, you've got a vast body of things which loosely come under the heading of folklore and mythology. Uh, mm. Fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all tend to get jumbled together, quite understandably. Um, it's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world and what's a fairy tale in one place may technically be a legend in another. So just to complicate something that's already a bit of a muddle. Yeah, the fact of the matter is is that these things do inform one another. To try and separate them would be ridiculous. But we do have a kind of rule of thumb um, as kind of to what the terminology is meant to refer to. So... Broadly speaking, legends um, and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. So they actually have a place within history, uh, whether that is realistic or not. So an example of legends, uh, Robin Hood, King Arthur, etc. Beowulf. Beowulf. Um, Poetic Edda, that sort of thing. The the, the, the Odyssey. Um, (laughs) Potentially, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it depends who you're asking. Um, we then have morality tales, fables, and parables, which are much more concerned with delivering a message. This is usually religious or philosophical. Um, and again, we start to see a little bit of the crossover, um, as we'll talk about 
kind of fairy tales and how they were kind of taken by people like the Brothers Grimm, who sort of started to inject a little bit more of that, which is where that crossover kind of starts to appear. But they are different. Definitely. And I, the Brothers Grimm also borrowed a few Aesop's fables yeah. and embellished them as well. So, so yeah, there is... But obviously the intention initially with the morality tales and fables was the fact that they were supposed to deliver a message in a story format rather than um, be purely entertainment to start with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Uh, and fairy tales themselves obviously contained fantasy creatures, so dwarves, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, and various other creatures. And they do not tend to contain more than superficial references to religion, actual places, historical people, or events. Now, the religion thing's a little bit up in the air mm. because once you get onto, say, Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, Brothers Grimm, it's a little bit more than just superficial, but mm. it's also not very directive, yeah. I think is is fair to say. But it's definitely there. So if you take something like the red shoes, well, she was thinking about wearing red shoes on a Sunday in church. And that, <laughs> yeah. You know, that tale didn't end very happily for anyone. Um, but for the most part, you know, these fairy tales, they happened once upon a time or long ago. Um, and they are being presented as fiction. They are being kind of presented more as a reflection of society than as so unlike legends which is oh yes these actually what did happen there's fairy tales are much more nebulous in that way definitely and some folklorists prefer the term marching or wonder tales so i think mm. it wasn't coined by the brothers Grimm, but it certainly became a term that they used wasn't it uh marching and kinder and house and something or other yeah yeah, yeah. house marching yeah um, yeah, um, and it's worth noting, of course, the difference between fairy tales and folk tales. Um, again, massive amounts of crossover because a lot of fairy tales were born out of folk tales. Um, but folk tales might have actually had more, been presented with more of a this has happened or this does happen kind of, of thing, even whilst also being presented as fictitious. Um, they were kind of also much more rooted in certain areas. Um, and yeah, it's a very complicated issue. So there is a little bit of a distinction there mm. as well. But fairy tales definitely have more of a fictional element to them. I mean, if you want an example of the folktale, fairy tale paradox, um, you can still now in certain parts of Ireland speak to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who was taken by the fair folk kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> even, even that, and it is that kind of like, well, this does happen, but I can't give you the exact details, but I know it happened because so-and-so's brother's aunt's, yeah, whatever, aunt's <laughs> friend. <laughs> and my grandmother obviously used to talk in those oblique terms, except when she was being very, very, very literal about <laughs> something that she herself had actually experienced. So, mm. so there you go. Um, okay, so while we're familiar with fairy tales, uh, as they can, uh, as they have been preserved yeah. because they've been written down, and while this can make it, it can make it tricky to get to the roots because the sort of people who had access mm -hmm. to both writing, <laughs> the facility of writing, being able to write and also having the materials, and to publishing them, being listened to enough to be published, were almost exclusively men or at least very rich so this definitely yeah. puts a spin on fairy tales um fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that and were most likely handed down from mother to daughter or 
grandmother to granddaughter kind mm. of thing. Another name for them is actually spinning tales. So you've got a long, tedious task ahead of yeah, you. How do absolutely. you make the time fly when you tell each other um, stories? <laughs> and this is the... It's an interesting thing because it was exclusively written, you know, almost exclusively written by men. But a lot of fairy tales, when written for children, were aimed at women, which I always find very funny because basically it was, this is written by men and it's instructions by men for what women, how women should behave. Yeah, when you go around the house, it's like that. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll, when we look at some of the examples a bit later on, mm. you'll see that there is a very clear progression of influence. Yeah coming into the fairy tales i think which i find very interesting <laughs> yeah it would probably make me angry if i let myself get a motive about it but i'm not going to um so yeah remember the nature of the story is to shape shift in order to survive and fairy tales have been shape shifting for a very long time so with that in mind let's have a little look at little red riding hood um now it is one of the world's best known fairy tales um, I mean, Little Red Riding Hood is one of those stories where symbolism alone will bring it to mind. If you see a red hood, if you see anyone wearing a red cloak of any kind, you think Little Red Riding Hood. If you hear Big Bad Wolf, you think Little Red Riding Hood. Um, it's so it, it's so ingrained within Western culture and even beyond Western culture. But despite that, it actually has a fairly short history. Yeah, it does. Um, or rather, it has a fairly short history where we've got written record or, you know, written record and a copy of the original written story. Yes. Um, the first fixed version of this largely European folktale was written down by Charles Perrault in 1697 with the Brothers Grimm very grudgingly adding their own version of it in 1812. Um, there's an interesting little aside here. The Brothers Grimm were not keen on adding Little Red Riding Hood to their collection of House Martian because they felt that they didn't want something that was invented by someone else. And it was only because they located a couple of older oral tales which seemed to be the same mm. sort of story that they sort of grudgingly said, okay, we're going to include Rot Catchin. Yeah. And so, what's what's kind yeah. of interesting <laughs> is that w when the Brothers Grimm also uh, included it in theirs, there is a startling difference between the Brothers Grimm version and Charles Perrault's version, um, which comes to light particularly in the English translation of the Brothers Grimm version of Little Red Riding Hood, um, where... In the Brothers Grimm version, they have a an epilogue. Charles Perrault's, yeah, which we'll go into a little yes, bit. More. Which we will. But it's whenever I hear something, they're, they're just they're like, fine, we'll tell the story, but we're gonna add an element. the The epilogue almost seems to be a, and this is another version of the story that we've heard, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, with with that aside, with the fact that we've got these two versions mm. that are definitely written down that we can put dates on, um, there's evidence that, and written evidence as well that these stories and its themes existed for quite mm. some time before that and it's possible to trace a far longer lineage. Um, and that's the thing with fairy tales, it's the themes which are immortal. Yes. Um, now, if you are... <laughs> if you get into Jungian theory and... Uh... 
<laughs> Joseph Campbell theory, it would be, well, this is because they're archetypes. Um, but also, the I think there's something to be said about a good story will live on. Um, and as we've said, fairy tales in particular are very adaptable. They do what they need to to survive. So they will spread far and wide. Now, at, the, at its core, uh, Red Riding Hood, the story involves a young girl walking through a forest whilst wearing a red cap, whereupon she meets a big bad wolf character. However, the theme of a ravening beast and a, a person being released from its belly unharmed is prevalent in much, much older tales. Not least things like Jonah and the Whale um, from Abrahamic mythology and Kronos and his children from Greek mythology. Definitely. Also, the theme of a predator posing in disguise mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a harmless creature is just as old, so think Aesop's fables. Um, aside from that, the core story of Little Red Riding Hood can be found in accounts by French and Italian peasants which go back to the 10th century. And there is a Saxon story that goes back just a little bit further that contains many of the mm -hmm. same elements um, and is weirdly a lot more gruesome. <laughs> I, I, I'll remember... I couldn't find an actual written <laughs> account of this Saxon story, so I will tell people what I remember of it. But you're going to have to do some digging, because I think it might have been an offshoot of something that was written around the time of Alfred the Great. So we're going back a really long way. A very, very long time, yeah. Now, there is an argument to be made that the story had a far wider geographical reach um, with stories like in the... Uh, is, it, is it the Quang dynasty? Is that how you pronounce I it? I think so. I think I say Quing, but I'm probably wrong. So <laughs> don't, don't ask me for Chinese. Yeah, sorry, guys. Me, but... <laughs> um, which is between, you know, which that's a, the, that, the Quang dynasty is very long. So, I mean, it's between the 1644 to 1912. Um, and, uh, and it's the Grand, uh, Grand Daunt Tiger. Yes, there's there's various yeah. versions of this, and we will look at one of the better known and most gruesome ones. <laughs> yes. This is a very gruesome fairy tale, people. It really is, yeah. Now, the earlier variations of the core story vary from later retellings in many ways, but it's essentially noticeable that once Perrault got his grubby little mitts on it, uh, the girl very quickly becomes a hapless and foolish victim. Uh, whereas in earlier versions, the girl escapes thanks to her own wits um, and she doesn't actually need a male relative or a woodcutter to rescue her. Um, and again, we will talk about the differences between Perrault's version and the Brothers Grimm version in a minute yes. because there are, there is a, a couple of very significant differences. There are some big differences. So we're going to try and roughly go in chronological order as to when these um, stories came about or when we can roughly date them yeah. to. Um, the first one is not noticeably a Red Riding Hood story, but we mentioned the Aesop's fable, The Wolf in mm -hmm. Sheep's Clothing. And I think as an example of an early example of the predator disguising itself as something harmless, you know, evil mm -hmm. seek, evil find, that particular theme it's actually a really good um, yes. <laughs> a really good example. 
Um, now, if you're not familiar with the wolf in sheep's clothing, I'm sure you've heard people say it's a he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, etc. You know, he's not as harmless as he seems. And maybe you don't know that the origin is from a very, very short little tale included in Aesop's fables. And basically, the wolf thinks that it will be a lot easier to get to tender meat and to get to the shepherd's well-guarded flocks if he disguises himself as a sheep and he finds an old sheepskin and binds it on himself. And then when the shepherd calls in the sheep at the end of the day, the wolf strolls in with the other sheep um, and is basically housed with them in the fold. Of course, that night, the shepherd decides that he quite would like, he would quite <laughs> like mutton for supper, goes out and fetches himself a sheep to kill. And of course, it's the wolf and the wolf ends up uh, killed by the shepherd and eaten. So it's that idea of evil seek, evil find. And I think that's actually how the story ends, evil seek, evil, evil find. Um, whereby if you go off intending to do harm, eventually it's going to catch up with you. In, in that respect, it's a satisfying story because we think someone who's done something wrong will eventually get their comeuppance. Yeah. But the other important moral of the story is obviously that things are not always what they appear to be. Yes. Um, and... <laughs> It's one of those really universal things. Um, and one of the things I think that, again, makes the story so prevailing, especially even in the modern day, is that theme at, it, at its centre, because it goes both ways. Things are not always what they see, appear to be. Sometimes something which looks good may be bad. Sometimes something which looks bad may be good. <laughs> yes. Um, so is the, is the wolf actually really a wolf? Um, I, I don't know. I, I just love the implications of it. Red Riding Hood is one of my favourite fairy tales when it comes to adaptation because the possibilities are very great. And it very much has been uh, adapted. So what are some of the later versions from this? I say later, the next sort of versions along the line. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, there are probably hundreds and thousands of versions and I've kind of just picked out the ones that showed a significant difference mm -hmm. so we're sort of leaping through time which is what i like to do um so the next one is the italian la finta nona which you know yeah. also has an echo in french folklore as well and it's more of a folklore mm. tale than a fairy tale i think it's fair to say uh, la finta nona that means the false grandmother uh, we can definitely date it to the 14th century and we've got versions or partial versions that date back to the 10th century and as I said, we've got another version which has nothing to do with grandmothers at all, <laughs> um, which kind of dates around to the 8th century BCE, um, Saxon era, um, which again, I'll come to a bit later. But anyway, in La Fintanona, again, you have a young girl. She's called Little Red Cap, but they're not talking about her having a red hood. The suggestion is that she has red hair, mm. which is interesting um, because... There, there is a checkered history of people having red hair in that particular era of history yes, and it being good uh... or bad. On one hand, it was supposed to signify royal lineage. On the other hand, it was supposed to signify that you were a disciple of Judas or that you were a loose woman. So that's not good. But she is very definitely a little girl, someone on the cusp of puberty, sort of 12, 13. Yeah. And she is sent by her mother to visit her grandmother and... With, with a basket of, of, I think, sort of butter and bread and things because her grandmother's not very well and is living in mm. off in the woods. And her mother 
this is the one where I think her mother absolutely says, stay on the path, go straight to your grandmother's house, come straight home. This sort of thing you would say to yes. a child <laughs> if you were sending her off into the woods for some yeah. reason by herself. I love, I love that the, um, it's in every version the, of the mother's just there like, now do as I tell and I'm like, perhaps you shouldn't send her off <laughs> into the woods. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of a, a sort yeah. of a testing thing, isn't it? Um, anyway, she, so she she is being generally a good girl. She's wandering along and she pauses because she sees some wildflowers by the path and she thinks, oh, my grandmother would like some wildflowers. They will cheer her in her illness. She stops and picks them and a wolf comes out of the forest. And the wolf says, where are you off to? And the girl, and it's very particular, it says, and the girl did not know the mm. wolf was a wicked and cunning beast. And she said, why, I am visiting my grandmother who is ill. And the wolf says, there are better wildflowers just over there. You'll still be able to see the path. And the girl's like, oh, thanks very much. Um, sort of wanders off the path enough to get these wildflowers. Uh, at which point the wolf races through the forest in, on a shortcut to her grandmother's house mm. and pretends to be Little Redcap <laughs> by making his voice really soft. And the grandmother tells him how to get in the house. He gets in the house, he eats the grandmother, but he saves a pitcher of her blood and a piece of her flesh and puts them in the cupboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to get gross. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he dresses up in grandmother's clothes, gets into bed, pulls the covers up to his nose. Uh, little red cap turns up a little bit later than she intended to. And uh, it's the whole sort of, how do I get in? Well, you know, lift the bolt, lift the latch and the bolt will fall, dear. Um, thing which we see in later versions of the yeah. story and little red cap comes in and you know she's sort of like oh, you sound very gruff grandmother and it's like oh well it's because i've got a cold dear etc etc um little red cap says i'm very thirsty and the wolf says well there is a pitcher of wine in the cupboard so little red cap um drinks from the pitcher of her grandmother's blood Grandmother, I'm terribly hungry. Oh, well, there's a piece of meat in the cupboard. So little red cap eats mm -hmm. her grandmother's flesh. And then she says, I'm very tired, grandmother. And uh, the wolf says, come lie down on the bed next to me. And so little red cap gets into bed with the wolf. And at this point, she thinks, she says, what hairy arms <laughs> you have, grandmother. <laughs> and realises that something's wrong. And she actually is very frightened at that point. And... You know, the wolf is kind of getting ready to make his move. Now, what's really interesting about the story is it, they're not talking about the wolf desperately wanting to eat her straight away. Mm. The wolf is just planning to pounce on her. So there is a very obvious sexual metaphor there as well. And no woodsman comes charging in to save her. What happens is uh, Little Red Cap says, I must visit the pri privy grandmother. <laughs> and her grandmother says, just do it in the bed, which is... I'm like, is this actually a thing for Italian peasantry in the 1400s? Because, whoa, that's not cool. And Little Red Cap comes back with, I don't have to go little, yeah. I have to go big, which I'm guessing means she had a number two brewing and that wasn't okay yeah. to do in the bed. It was fine to piss the bed, it just wasn't okay for you to shit in it. So the wolf very grudgingly says, oh, if you must, just hurry up. So Little Red Cap basically does what many women are still forced to do today when trying to get rid of a jerk at a party where they say they're going to the toilet and then they just leave mm -hmm. with a head start and it does actually work yes I hate to say it that does actually work um and it's she races all the way home and she promises herself she will never ever leave the path again kind of thing so she's learned her lesson and she's got herself out of her fix using her own wits 
which I always thought was interesting. Um, Absolutely. It's so that version as well, um, it's, there's a very similar version which is popularized and which was written and published I believe before Perrault published his uh, so the French variant um, and I believe that the folklorist who published it and it's called the story of grandmother uh, was called Paul uh, Paul de la Rue and it's again very very similar um, in that Red <laughs> The thing that I love about the, the the story of grandmother version is that Red eats and drinks the flesh of her grandmother unknowingly, and in the trans in the translated version, there's a cat that happens to see this, and the cat goes, "Fooey! A slut is she who consumes the flesh of her own grandmother." <laughs> You read that, and I know <laughs> just but very I judgmental creatures. Clearly, this is meant to be a comedy, um, <laughs> and there is, um, yeah. When she, when Red then says, "I need to go to the," because what happens is that also um, it, there's an implication that Red at this point knows what's about to happen. She she isn't frightened. She knows she's about to get into bed she knows it's a wolf at this point because she asks what shall i do with my clothes and he says um to, to throw them on the fire i believe that's the this version but either way she she's naked um she's had all of her clothes taken she doesn't have the chance to put them back on again she gets into bed yeah. she then kind of decides i don't really want to be here so again the same thing she says i need to go to the toilet um he says do it in the bed and she says no i need to go to the toilet so he goes fine and he ties a rope around her ankle and tells her to hurry up and go outside so she goes outside and she ties the rope she unties the rope from her ankle and she ties it to a tree and then runs off naked into the forest leaving the wolf tugging at the tree saying uh, what are you are you making uh, i think different variants like are you making piles out there or are you making chains out there uh, because she's taking so long. This <laughs> peak comedy, apparently, for a <laughs> medieval France. And when by the time the wolf... Well, to be fair, the medieval... Yeah, by the time the wolf realises... <laughs> the medieval era, they, they, they thought the height of humour was yeah, the toilet really jokes. Yeah, they really And so the wolf suddenly realises, hold on a second, if I really tug, she, she seems to be way too strong, looks out, realises he's been tricked, he chases her, um, but she gets home before him and she locks the door and and that's it that's finished and there's an implication of her sort of running through the forest laughing as it were because she's just running naked and that's absolutely fine she she leaves victorious from that situation yeah yeah and i think that is actually a a Mm. similar version of la fintanona as well that's so from uh yeah around the same sort of era so yeah, definitely. But yeah, trust the French to play it up as a. <laughs> as well, a bit it's of a it's farce. quite interesting, I think, because for me, what it really does is it actually demonstrates what some of the things that were happening in terms of French culture for, um, the for the for the peasantry compared to the aristo. Um, and also the, some of the situations that the French peasantry yeah. would be put into. So sex is almost treated more as a joke 
And the emphasis of the joke here isn't on red, it's on the wolf. The wolf is, has a, is, a, is made a fool of. Um, and what we can do is if we look at it at certain angles, we can say this is actually about a young woman who's been sort of seduced by a, um, uh, by a, a noble and has actually kind of gone, actually, you're not very handsome um, and you're not actually that scary and has outwitted him essentially and just yes. run off. So it's quite interesting how culturally you can sort of start to interpret some of the information. Yeah, definitely. There is definitely a seed of uh, beware the drop de seigneur in there, isn't there? And by the way, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. don't have to go along with it just because he's more powerful. You can appear to capitulate and find your way out if you want to kind yeah. of thing. So, um, okay, let's look at the Qing or whatever dynasty, sorry, China, <laughs> uh, version, the panther or a grandot tiger, which is, uh, you know, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit because it ca contains many of the same th themes. What's interesting with this one is that it starts, once upon a time there was a widow with two daughters and a little son. And one day she says to her daughters, be good and take care of the house and be sure the door is bolted well. I am going to see grandmother and she takes her baby son with her um, on the way she is she stops to feed her son and a panther comes down out of the forest attacks her and eats her and her son before he manages to consume her she begs him to spare her life because she has two daughters at home um, this doesn't make him spare her life he just goes hmm, great dessert <laughs> kind of thing and it, once he's you know murdered her and eaten her and her infant son he then goes back to the house impersonates the mother to get the daughters to open the, the door to him and goes in and he's he continues this fabrication of being their mother and when they say where is our infant brother um it's like oh he's in the cradle and one of the daughters looks and it's actually a stone wrapped mm -hmm. up in the blanket and things like that and it, it's very, very typical folk fair. And the girls work out that they have actually been, you know, that this is a predator in their house pretending to be their mother and that this person has murdered their mother and their infant brother. And they play all sorts of tricks on the panther to try and get it to go. And eventually what they do is they go out um and sit outside mm -hmm. the house knowing that the panther will come back that night and they cry so people can see them and as people go past i think overall it's like four or five tradesmen stop and ask the girls what the matter is and they tell their story they say this is what's happened to us and of these five tradesmen each one of them gives them an, an item and says to do yeah. this they you know to put the snake behind the fireplace kind of thing uh put the pin in the arms of the chair but with the points upwards when the panther comes back, um, it, it does things like it sits in the armchair and then puts its hands on the arm and gets its mm. hands, its paws, whatever, um, and, and gets the pin stuck in it. And it runs to the well to try and soothe, soothe <laughs> its paw. And the thing that the scorpion that they've put in the well <laughs> stings it. So it runs to the fireplace <laughs> to get the, the iron to bash the scorpion with and the snake bites it kind of thing. And it goes on like that until the panther is so uncomfortable it leaves the house of its own volition and the girls bar the door out after it and they never let a stranger in again. 
and it's another one of those interesting ones where you've got two comparatively you know powerless peasant girls who through no fault of their own have found themselves alone in the world and it wasn't actually the widow's fault that she was eaten by a panther and that her son was murdered no <laughs> um but what they've done is they've not necessarily managed to get justice because the panther represents something that is much more powerful than them or a tiger in some things mm. i think i think when they wrote the story as a tiger it was kind of that's a little bit too close to being an imperial yes um, so it got changed to panther so you can kind of see the gradations of the story there may even be one where that it's a it's a dragon um which probably didn't go down terribly well but again it's showing that you are not completely helpless you can survive by your mm. wits yeah um, and yeah, you, you can argue that it's not really a Little Red Riding Hood story, but I think it is. I agree. And what's interesting, actually, is the filial nature of the story, which is very present yes. as a kind of a theme in pretty much all of the Red Riding Hood stories. Um, whether it's actually with regards to the usurpation, uh, usurp I can't speak, sorry, um, of of sort of the old family and, and you know which is represented in the eating of grandmother or whether it's actually to do with the one should do as one is told and what's interesting is that you have a story whereby they didn't technically have to open the door the second time when when the uh, when the panther kind of was coming back unless they were it was they the panther was already in the house um but at the same time, logically, we say, okay, well, if they realised it was a panther, why let it in? Uh, failing to recognise, of course, that the point isn't that it's an actual panther, but that n no door could be barred from it because of filial responsibility or because of some other kind of responsibility, which adds so, much, so many implications to the story in, in a very interesting yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an mm -hmm. element of the panther very definitely stands in for a powerful figure who has come in and is willing to take advantage. And the only way to get this creature to leave is to turn its own strength against itself, to make it so uncomfortable that it doesn't want to come back. Yeah. And you open the door the second time because you cannot use force against force here because you're not strong enough to hold up that kind of fight. No. But you can outwit it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very, very interesting. Um, so I would absolutely yeah. agree. I think that that is thematically is linked in with Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Okay, here is where we get to the roughly the 1600s yeah. and things take a bit of a swing. I mean, and I think as Madeline made a point earlier talking about the French mm -hmm. version of the, the grandmother story, um, the fact that, you know, for medieval people, for peasants, sex wasn't something that was just kept to no. within the confines of marriage. Uh, marriage. Sex outside of marriage to try out whether you liked mm -hmm. someone or not was perfectly common. Um, you might not get married until after you'd had your first child, for example. It was only the upper echelons who actually really cared about breeding lines and things. If you were a peasant, who really cared? 
In fact, it yeah. was more desirable if you could prove you were already fertile. Yeah, um, and in some ways, depending on the... And this, it was a very interesting thing. And again, this is where folklore and, and fairy tales kind of clash with religion. Because even though religion was saying, thou shall not do this, um, the, the reality of the difference between Perrault's fairy tales and the folklore of the time is that Perrault was definitely not writing for... <laughs> <laughs> for the for the most people who were like to be honest at this point there is going to be some lord if you're working in a household who is going to try and have sex with you um and actually you're not in bad standing if he succeeds <laughs> if you let him yeah um and you're also not ruined you, you if mean, you it... have already had sex yeah absolutely um we get to the 1600s and this trickle-down morality has definitely trickled down. And the, the story takes one of its biggest shape changes, I think. Um, we'll look at El Capellan Rossa, Little Red Hat, which is a Italian, I think. It sounds Italian. It is Italian. Um, but again, there are versions of this particular, this particular iteration of the story everywhere. Hmm. Um, is this follows the typical Little Red Riding Hood thing, except Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother live together, and they're out one day collecting herbs and flowers and things, and the grandmother gets tired and says to Little Red Hat that she is going home, and Little Red Hat must follow soon, and she can bring her some soup, kind yeah. of thing. And then it basically follows the same thing, except that Little Red Hat doesn't meet a wolf, she meets an ogre, and it's very definite that it's an ogre. And she again, it says she did not know the ogre for a wicked creature. Mm. And so she tells the ogre exactly what she's doing. And then she gets very distracted, wanders all the way off the path, like not just a little bit, but way, way away and gets mm -hmm. herself lost picking flowers. Meanwhile, the ogre's gone home, bashed granny over the head and sort of eaten most of her and preserved things like one hand and her teeth and various other things. Um, and stuck them in bits of the cupboard. I mean, this, clearly the ogre is <laughs> an absolute nut job. Anyway, Little Red Hat finally finds her way back to Grandmother's house and she speaks of being hungry, etc, etc. And through, you know, the, the ogre just stays in bed and says, oh yes, well, here, the, drink from this pitcher. And she ends up drinking her grandmother's blood, eating her grandmother's flesh, eating her grandmother's teeth, which the, the ogre tries to pretend are rice, which is just bizarre. And little red hat's kind of like, oh, the, this rice is very hard. And it's like, and also, even if grandmother had all of her teeth, <laughs> only 30 grains of rice. Seriously? And, and it goes through all of this. And then finally, little red hat gets into bed with the ogre. Oh, grandmother, how, how hairy your arms are. Oh, grandmother, how big your ears are. Oh, grandmother, how sharp mm. your teeth are. And I think it's the first time we actually get that, how sharp your teeth are. Yeah. And the ogre jumps on her and devours her. And that's the end of yeah. the story. It just ends Which is, you there. know, fun times. That's it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, what's really interesting here um, with that version is the inclusion of an ogre. Now, up until this point, uh, very much the sort of yeah. the wolf, there is kind of an association with with the wild, with the wolf, if that makes sense. Um, it's a very rugged kind of uh, figure. But there is, a, particularly yeah. in French mythology, so I can't speak for Italian, but very much within French mythology, there does seem to be a link between ogres and the aristo. 
So you get it into tales where ogres are passing through certain areas. There's this very, you get this kind of sense of they're not really an ogre. They are, they're an army or something like that. Um, it's the same in things like, um, oh la la, what's it called? Um, Puss in Boots where you have the ogre who commands sort of the castle. There is very much this kind of, yes. they, the ogres are meant to be the corrupt aristo who are lording it over everybody else. So the idea here that you have very specifically an ogre who is kind of taking, uh, sort of taking charge, literally kind of eating people, etc. Um, again, you start to get this kind of, this potentially coded interpretation, sorry, this potentially coded um, idea that this is in regards to um, the Aristo and what they will do and how they will just consume you. Um, again, given, remember, what was particularly happening with the, with the Aristo uh, during these times in these areas. Um, now, when we get to, so we then get to Perrault's version, which is uh, Le Petit Chaperon Rouge. So um, that is 1697. Um, and it, it becomes a bit of a standing stone in terms of sort of Little Red Riding Hood uh, kind of publication. Yeah, and, and it does okay. because it is kind of the first one that was really written down or written down that we've got access yeah. to in, in full. I think is that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was writing this story. These um, and his stories were very much meant to be um, codes of conduct for young women in particular. And at the end of all of his collections of fairy tales, um, he did have little morals written out. What is the moral of the story? Now, this is funny on several levels because it also demonstrated the fact that sometimes. Perrault seriously missed the mark. For example, all you have to do is read his morals regarding Puss in Boots to re realise he didn't recognise it was taking the piss out of the aristocracy. But he yeah. does the same with um, Le Petit Chaperon Rouge. And the thing that's interesting about it, again, is that just like with um, El Capelin Rosa, uh, there is no woodsman who comes along. There is no rescue, there's no saviour, um, there's notably no cannibalism. Uh, <laughs> so he just went... <laughs> yeah, apparently that was too, too much, much for his sensibilities. And the thing is that he made no sort of illusions of, of this kind of this old folkloric element. Uh, in his morals, he warns against... Um, sort of the wolves who will try and convince their way and he uses this great sort of phrase which is that they will try to worm their way into into women's alcoves and he he actually notes yes. down he says not all wolves look wolvish yes beware the charming wolf that walks yeah. on two feet and that will whisper sweetly at your door kind of thing e exactly exactly um and that's what he warns about and he essentially the the ending is very abrupt which is and she dies and that's it um and the meaning is clear which is that once the wolf gets in there's no there's no rescue there's no end to that you are then at the whims of the wolf entirely 
um, you are dead. And socially, he's putting forward, yeah, once you've had sex, you know, out of wedlock with a wolf, um, that's it. You're done. You're finished. You might as well be dead, is the implication there. So it's not a very friendly implication uh, for a lot of reasons. It may also be an even more literal one, whereby it's a case of you have sex, you end up pregnant, alone, with no one to support you, everyone's made you an outcast, there's a chance you're going to die in childbirth, you are literally dead, and God will turn his face from you for daring to do this wicked thing. Um, So, uh, but the thing that really interests me is that there are lots of reasons why I sort of scoff at Perrault. But it is the fact that he recognises that sort of not all wolves, he makes that note to say, be careful, because not all wolves look, you know, just, you know, like so. Sometimes they are very beautiful and sometimes they seem very honest. And in that, there's something very, very interesting here, um, which has to be noted because Perrault, as we know, is very particularly writing this a sort of book of conduct for women of a certain age. So in doing so, he had to make Red Riding Hood a, a good little girl who makes a mistake. And the reason she makes a mistake isn't because she is disobedient, but because she's too trusting. Um, so the the sin, the choice... Yeah. The incorrect thing that Little Red Riding Hood does in this isn't talking to the wolf. Um, It's actually deviating from her task. She was given a task by her mother. She was given a chore and she deviated from that chore. And Perrault's kind of moral within this is the you should, you must be polite to all. Um, You must be respectful to all. But... The rule of the parent comes before all else. The only thing that comes above it is the rule of God. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've just found that passage from Perrault uh, where he's talking about wolves and it's like, it's this, it's the wolf, I say, for wolves too sure there are of every sort and every character. Some of them mild and gentle humoured be of noise and gall and rankle wholly free who tame familiar full of complacence ogle and leer, languish, cajole and glance, with luring tongues and language wondrous sweet, follow young ladies as they walk the street, even to their very houses, nay, bedside, and artful though their true designs they hide, yet are these simpering wolves, who does not see, most dangerous of wolves Mm. indeed they be. So yeah, if you didn't get the moral from actually reading his version of the story, he then writes yeah. the moral poem. <laughs> at the end as well. And of course, this the other interesting thing is that all versions, pretty much all versions of Perrault that you will read, will have been translated. Um, so, <laughs> yes. but yeah, he, he's very much like. And just in case you didn't get the memo, yeah. he he just really wants to make sure that people know exactly what he's talking about. He's he's a funny old man. Anyway, um, so from. Le Petit Chepard en Rouge, we then get the little red cap um, from the Brothers Grimm. And... Yes. Yes. Caption, which is probably my favourite version, I think. Although I'm not entirely sure why, because in many ways yes. it's, it's um, almost as though, I, I mean, to be honest, I think my favourite version is the story of Grandmother, which is just the sort of, yeah, I'm not 
not sure I really want this anymore. Um, and because I'm obsessed <laughs> with the with the cat saying "fooey." Um, but yes, in this version, we have a very notable <laughs> addition to the story, which comes in the form of the woodcutter. Yes, sometimes he's a hunter, sometimes he's a woodcutter. I think it depends who they were telling the story for. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a woodsman of some kind. Um, now, there are massive gender politics in this uh, version of it. The the Brothers Grimm did a lot of things, but they were super into their gender politics. Um, and it really, really kind of shows. Uh, the story in no uncertain terms is basically saying where a man's place is and when a where a woman's place is. So the mother, for example, um, she is uh, a dutiful mother and she's a dutiful daughter. She's thinking about her own mother. She's warning her daughter about going away, but she does not leave the house. Her duty is within the household. That yeah. is her command. The woodcutter, he is outside. That is his duty. Um, and what's interesting in, in is that in almost all other versions of the tale, um, the grandmother, her only purpose is to be killed. She's there to die. She doesn't get anything else. I feel very sorry yeah. for her. She just, <laughs> she just, she always just gets killed. <laughs> but in this version, she actually gets to have her moment of wisdom. Um, and she gets this because in this version, there is an epilogue. Yes, definitely. Um, now, in Rod Caption you, is where you definitely get the, uh, what big eyes you have, what big ears you have, what big teeth mm -hmm. you have, which I think yeah. all children probably know that particular version as well. Um, and there's obviously a uh, little Red Riding Hood is swallowed in one gulp by the wolf and... Uh, at which point yeah. the wolf has had a very heavy meal and goes to sleep in grandmother's bed again. Um, the huntsman or woodsman or forester, in fact, he probably was a forester. And we have to remember that being a forester or a fool jamb uh, was actually a yeah. position of great responsibility. So this person had great prospects, um, was passing outside and thinks, why, how, how loudly the old woman is snoring this evening and decides to peek inside. At which point he finds the wolf asleep in grandmother's bed, having dined on grandmother and uh, also Little Red Riding Hood. And uh, why is it you, old sinner? I have sought you long. And he cuts the wolf's belly open without the wolf apparently waking up. Wolf is really, really sleepy. Yeah. The wolf should really not have had two humans in one sitting. Um, and Little Red Riding Hood tumbles out and says, oh, thank goodness, it was so dark inside the wolf, I thought I would never see the light of day again. So she's very definitely been rescued by, not necessarily from death either, from a fate worse mm. than death. Yeah. So again, we've got a bit of gender politics going on there. And in some versions, you have grandmother coming out from behind her as well. Yes. So, um, so first of all, yeah, we see this very clear distinction where Red doesn't get killed. So we're not, so Perrault doesn't get his way. Perrault doesn't just go, and she died, and that's very, very sad. Um, but now you know better. Uh, she gets to live, um, she, and she's kind of scarred from what's happened. Now, again, the very interesting element is that um, they... She, her, her grandmother comes out as well um, and they sew stones into the wolf's belly um, which means that when he yep. wakes up 
he panics, tries to move, and immediately dies. Uh, again, we've got to kind of go a little bit, well, why didn't he wake up before? But it doesn't need to make sense. Um, but in the epilogue, and this is an epilogue which is again based on the fact that the Brothers Grimm wanted to kind of reflect the tales of, of didn't want to be writing something that someone else had made up. And therefore, this is probably one of the other versions that they'd heard. Um, and in this version, most interestingly, um, Red realises she's being followed by a wolf. And she becomes very frightened. She's learnt her lesson from the last time. She doesn't stray from the path. She goes straight to her grandmother's house and she says, I've been followed. The wolf tried to stop me. And her grandmother says, no problem, just stay here. But when it's time for Red to go home, she notices that the wolf is prowling around outside waiting for her. So her grandmother basically says, uh, go and yeah. grab the... Go and grab the... Oh, that's it. They hear the wolf go onto the roof, essentially, um, and waiting to pounce the moment they step out. And her grandmother says, I've just been boiling some sausages. Um take this trough which is sorry take this pan which is full of uh, this sort of meaty water um and put it in the trough outside so they do that and the wolf smelling the meat leans down so far that he falls off the roof and dies and this is really really interesting particularly if it, it's the brothers grim yeah. saying okay this is an alternative version because it's the first time we see an example of grandmother actually having some kind of authority and being recognized for her wile and her cunning yeah definitely i've seen other versions as well whereby shortly after being rescued from the wolf and the, whatever epilogue you go with, you know, the wolf gets its belly sewn with stones or whatever, or dies falling off a wolf, mm. where the woodsman then marries Little Red Riding Hood and she stops being approached by wolves. And that's the very interesting thing to me is the fact that she stops being approached by wolves on the path. Yeah. Because she's now married. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you, <laughs> whenever you read this story... Um, you, you sort of have to ask, is the woodsman supposed to be a father figure or a husband figure? Best not think about it too much. <laughs> Definitely. Um, what I like about Rot Caption is it really blurs the line between the wolf being a metaphor for a sexual predator and the wolf actually just being a werewolf. And, you know, werewolves traditionally in European folklore are really in two things, you know, sex and eating. So he could have gone either way. Yeah, very much. Um, but I was just going to finish off and again say that the whole, the werewolf angle really does come through, particularly in the Grimm's version in terms of their epilogue. But one thing I wanted to mention was the fact that the most people will not be aware of the epilogue. Most of our listeners will not be aware of the epilogue. And that is very simply because in the translation of... Uh, Little Red Riding Hood from the Grimm's version, the epilogue is left out in the English translation. Yeah. Very purposefully. They decided not to include it. Yes. And that has always kind of made me... I, I've always kind of theorised as to why that might be, what the implications of that decision are, um, and also how the epilogue in so many ways speaks very specifically 
of um, German folklore. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I'm going to briefly mention the sort of Saxon origin one that I said before, which is mm. very definitely a werewolf tale, but you look at it and go, there's kind of a little Red Riding Hood thing going on there. Yes. Um, and what happens is you have a mother, or rather she's not a mother, she's a young bride. She gets married and her husband is a, a large, strong hirsute man. And after their wedding night, he goes missing and they're not sure what happens. And eventually she sort of moves on and she runs the household and she gives birth to a daughter who is, you know, sort of acknowledged to be, you know, surpassingly fair, so fair that she's gifted with this red cloak and hood. And it's on the path to, I think it's, I think it might be a relative's house, that she is accosted by this wolf type creature who she isn't unaware is her father and is abducted by him. Um, he takes her away to a, a different house location whereby she is forced to endure a trial where she has to drink blood. And this drinking of blood is to see whether she can digest it, in which case she's a true wolf's daughter mm. and will join him. And it's um, uh, and what happens is her mother and her grandmother turn up and manage to rescue her before she completes the trial. And I think the wolf is the wolf man who turns out to be her father, her original, the original husband who went missing, is actually dispatched. Um, they they bring some swords and men and stuff, useful stuff with them like that. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but it, the, the problem is, it's a fragmentary tale, and I think it was intended as more of a werewolf tale originally. But looking at it, you're kind of like. That's Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, yeah. Um, and uh, one other thing that's interesting is that in the story of Grandmother, which I mentioned before, um, it is very much a werewolf. Yes. That is how the wolf is described. Not a wolf, they are described as a werewolf. Yes. One um, of the hairy on the inside variety. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yes the it's just fascinating to see the kind of the little nuggets of folklore um within the tale itself and how it's adapted definitely okay our final one which has definitely definitely been cleaned up mm -hmm. is by andrew lang who wrote it in 1890 and like a true victorian he took out all the things that really disturbed him and upset him about the original <laughs> yeah he's, he's like oh no and that wasn't quite enough for him he found the original so disturbing that he had to completely basically say that the original was false that you know if you've heard the original story about a girl in a red cape that's wrong that's not the right story he, i mean i think the story actually begins you know the tale of poor little red riding hood that the wolf deceived and devoured with her cake her little butter can and her grandmother well the true story happened quite differently he's very definite on this point so um, this is the, sto the true story of Little Golden Hood. Mm -hmm. Similar thing, very pretty peasant girl. Everyone loved her and her grandmother gifts her a cloak and hood which is like flame and like gold and it turns out to be her grandmother has woven it out of a ray of sunlight. Um, not telling her granddaughter that it is actually magical and if you are a genuinely good person then it will protect you kind of thing. The rest of the story plays out very much like Little Red Riding Hood. Um, she doesn't really stray from the path as such. She just gets tricked. She makes a mistake. Mm. 
and then she turns up and the the entire dumb play with the the wolf and uh what big eyes you have etc what big ears you have what big teeth you have how great and dark your mouth is and the wolf is about to devour her when her golden hood lights up and burns his throat because it's a magical cape made of a ray of sunlight and she is truly a good person and uh yeah then at which point she obviously escapes the wolf runs away howling with his throat burnt and at this point this is where you get your your little glimmer of hope with the grandmother because the grandmother uh turns up because she's been away she her house was empty the wolf hasn't turned up and devoured Mm. her the wolf has turned up and broken into her empty house and the old lady's kind of pissed off about this and pissed off about the wolf trying to eat her granddaughter so she whacks him over the head with a stick and sticks him in a sack (laughs) (laughs) at which point she then drops him in the river to drown as you do as you do and then she gives her she gives the child um cake and wine to fortify her and makes her promise never to um listen to wolves talking on the path again kind of thing so it all ends quite happily and with the sort of Victorian saccharineness that you'd expect. Yes. And this is, again, one of the really interesting things is that the Victorians really, really emphasise that idea of if you are good and holy and pure, you will be rewarded. And, it, and it's yes, one no. of the uh, reasons, actually, that I actually like Perrault's version to a certain degree. I mean, I, I have lots of things to complain about when it comes to Perrault's version, and I do. I've even written a poem about it in complaint. Um, but it's one of those things where the narrative isn't, if you are good, you will be protected because you are a truly good person. It is that you can be absolutely good and you can be tricked and it will be the end of your life, therefore you must be wary. Um, which, yeah. to be honest, I find to be a lot more helpful in terms of instruction for the time and the period, then, uh, but because she was good and true, you know, truly good, uh, and had happened to have a magical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as tone deaf as Peril is in many ways, he was at least, I think, well intentioned there. <laughs> he was. He was a man of his era, and you've got to, you know, the problem is, I do think he was well intentioned. Um, I just do think he was also, you know, a bit socially blind uh, <laughs> just completely missed the mark on a few things i i always feel like he's mansplaining yes as in he's got no personal experience of anything he doesn't come from that class and yet he's he's deigning to instruct he, that class yeah he really were. is he, he is full-on mansplaining um but you know at the same time uh, yeah he ha- actually has some useful advice for that kind of class, but at the same, but also like his his sort of morals for things like Bluebeard. Every now I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of useful. And then his, he's like, oh, Bluebeard, she should have obeyed her husband. I'm like, and there we go. <laughs> there it is. I was waiting <laughs> there it is. for it. <laughs> Never mind the fact that he was a serial killer. Yes. Anyway, we'll, maybe we'll do Bluebeard in a future one. Um, Okay, so let's recap on the main themes. Now, obviously, we've mm. talked about the fact that predators go in disguise, which uh, we, you get that in the wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's very definitely a big theme yes. in all our iterations of Little Red Riding um. Hood. <laughs> Sorry. 
I'm still angry at parole. Uh, <laughs> you started something within me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ignaz. No, I'm always angry at <laughs> but, parole. But, you know, it can't it's be also good girls <laughs> stick to the path or bad things happen to them. And the path can be as in doing what you're told. Uh, essentially, it doesn't have to be a literal path, which is good girls will do what their mothers tell them to do. Yeah. I will say, though, that the whole idea of sticking to the, you know, the well-trodden path isn't just a metaphor. In folklore terms, if you wanted to pass safely through the forest, and I don't just mean safely in terms of um, you don't get lost, you don't get attacked by predators, you don't get attacked by brigands or whatever, you stick to the mm. path and dark creatures will not touch you because you are safe yeah. on the path is actually a big theme in actual folklore, as in stay on the path, wear speed well in your shoes and go quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you start to see how kind of folklore feeds, or how some folklore is potentially born and how it sort of feeds into um, other ideas. I, I don't know, I think it's fascinating. So uh, next we get... Um, uh, the the big themes uh, which are definitely puberty sexual awakening um and ruination which which is where we really get authors like um angela carter going buck wild <laughs> definitely i mean i think it's really interesting that they chose red yeah. that, that is nearly always a red cloak apart from andrew latin who's kind of like well that would be scandalous he's wearing gold like a good girl um but red is a color that in in terms of dying if we go back to the middle ages or even victorian era you know mm. dying something red was it was expensive it was a very expensive dye to yeah. make you can get an approximation using plant dyes if you've got mm. access to madder and various other things, but it's more of a pinky colour. It's quite difficult to get a true scarlet, a true crimson colour, it, and it's very, very expensive. It's distinctive. It would really, really stand out. So to give a girl something like that, you are setting her apart. You're making her special. There's almost an element yeah. of if you're too pretty, if you draw too much attention, which is very unsavoury yeah, because that feeds into the whole well look at how she's dressed kind of thing or only really pretty girls get attacked your beauty can become a double-edged sword um which is all very unsavory to us now but there was an element of that there as yeah well, I think. yeah i would agree with you um and it comes as a very it comes as a warning but also again when we think in regards to sort of some of the ways that it hints towards aristocracy and stuff like that red being an expensive color um, there is an element also of be careful of making yourself appear above your station be careful of you know uh, appearing or putting on airs or things like that which could also potentially play into it even if not necessarily consciously Yeah, definitely. And then there's the obvious symbolism of a girl in a red cloak. She's reached the age where, you know, she's hit puberty. She's yeah. she's having a menstrual cycle. Ergo, she is now technically a woman and will draw more attention because of that. She's not a child anymore. Yeah, or might even draw attention because she wants to yeah. draw attention. I mean, the story of grandmother, 
you kind of very much get the implication where she's actually talking to the wolf. He asks her which path she's going on. It's almost a bit of a race. And we'll talk about Angela Carter in a minute, but this is these are themes that Angela Carter uh, has drawn on for In the Company of Wolves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then the whole, actually, I don't think I will go through with this. <laughs> yes. Angle. So, I mean, it's multi-layered. Yeah, there's definitely the, you set yourself apart, then you may draw unwanted attention. Or maybe it's wanted attention, but you need to have your wits about you. Yeah. Which is where we get to, you know, if you find yourself in a fix, you can actually rescue yourself using your own intelligence. Yeah. Until the Brothers Grimm are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 you must be rescued. Yeah. Um, as we, I sort of just skipped one, but we did mention the whole werewolf angle. It's pretty apparent in almost all yes. of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Also, cannibalism. <laughs> cannibalism was a big thing in this story right up until, again, yes. Charles Perrault. Um, that's, 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 that's just too far. No, 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 no. Um, and again, I do laugh. I always laugh at this because I just say, look, if you're, if you're reading into um, fairy tales, you tend to be able to kind of tell where some of them sort of are very popular or where they come from. By the themes they include and the french were like yeah bestiality fine whatever um but they draw they always drew the line at cannibalism the cannibalism was always the germans <laughs> the german fairy tales are just chock full of it um and the french the french were like ah oh, bestiality yeah. necromancy and the Italians, actually not necromancy necrophilia fine whatever murder <laughs> okay <laughs> But incest <laughs> incest oh yeah a lot of incest as well Meh. but um yeah no they, they suddenly went now nah, we're drawing the line here how dare you even imply that two people they might have eaten each other yeah definitely um and the final thing that always strikes me which is probably not a main theme for a lot of people but is the the weird relationship between the wolf mm. and the girl they meet on the path and no matter what the wolf doesn't attack her there there's a weird sort of kinship. Now, whether it's because he wants to take his time with her or he wants something from her other than to just briefly sate his, his appetite mm. for food, uh, you can read quite a lot into that as well. I mean, the only one that doesn't really fit is the ogre who very definitely yeah. wants to eat her, but but enjoys sort of, uh, you know, sort of despoiling yeah. her. Yeah, and, and it's quite first. interesting, again, in that, again, when you consider the implications, therefore, of this, in that... If it is a sexual encounter that he wants, it's not actually to eat her, but a sexual encounter. Um, then it's basically him yeah. saying, "Shall I? Where? Uh, let's meet at your place," kind of thing. Um, and it does actually create this yes. interesting idea in regards to what being consumed means, um, because you could say, right, that the wolf eating them is the act of having sex. Um, but then that means he also had sex with the grandmother, which, fair enough. Um, perhaps he's into that. I don't know. Or it could be about reputation. It could be within regards to kind of destroying one's standing yeah. um, in which, you know, in certain circles, you could end up doing that. Um, and there are also implications, which is that the the eating of the grandmother is actually in regards to the grandmother needs to be gotten rid of because um we've got that older kind of mythology of you know the the hag um 
the maiden, the mother. She is. She needs to kind of be gotten rid of because she's yeah. part of the old world. And now this young girl is coming up. It's her turn. She, it, she is coming into fruition now, as it were. So the wolf has to eat her because he cannot he cannot bed Little Red Riding yeah, Hood I mean, until um, she is actually an adult. And she cannot be an adult um, until uh, her grandmother, who is the adult at this point, is gone. Yeah. And there are versions where he doesn't eat the grandmother because she's old and stringy and not to his taste. He just throws her in the fire. Which... <laughs> so sorry for her she really has a bad luck with all of this yeah she does i mean i think you're onto something with the erasure of uh an older person's usefulness and wisdom Mm. because i mean she can't be she can't be if she's living out by herself on the edge of the forest well okay we know that many societies disapproved of that so there's a good reason why oral tales would be shifted so that you know, she doesn't get much of a part in the story. Um, but if she is actually living like that, and she has to be in order to send Little Red Riding Hood through the forest in the first place, then she can't actually be a complete duffer, can she? she I mean, she's surviving perfectly well by herself yeah, exactly. out in the middle of nowhere. So I, you know, yeah. I think it's interesting. Okay, let's look at some modern retellings. Um, obviously, I couldn't write a list of modern retellings without mentioning In the Company of Wolves, which is a very short Angela Carter story and a very disturbing film based on that short story. Yes. So In the Company of Wolves is part of Angela Carter's collection, The Bloody Chamber. Um, And it's quite interesting because she has three wolf stories, really. And In the Company of Wolves kind of has has several stories sort of mixed into it. Um, She also has The Werewolf um, and... What's interesting is that Angela Carter spent some time doing translations of various... Um, I'm pretty sure she she's done a translation of Perrault's um, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, for example. And In the Company of Wolves definitely pulls from Perrault. Uh, you can see elements of uh, the story of Grandmother um, as well, or sort of, sort of some of these older oral versions of it and you can see the canniness of kind of the brothers Grimm as well coming through too um but it seems to be that she's kind of she's retelling Perrault's version but within the context of the the story of grandmother whereby the liaison which is happening is very much happening out of choice it's a game they're kind of sort of getting into sort of a little bit of foreplay here um, and yes. she becomes a wolf, the woman, and she lies down. And the wolves are not manic creatures. They howl and stuff like that while sort of the sex is being had and things like that. But at the end, they kind of curl up and they go to sleep. They become little darlings in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is very definitely about claiming your own sexual agency. Yes. Now, I have many difficulties with uh, Angela Carter's writing. I think it's very interesting and is very important. She is one of these writers who kind of um, set the stage a great deal and was doing, you know, but she's definitely within second wave feminism, to which we owe a fantastic amount. But her writing is a little bit turfy. I'm not going to lie, uh, because that's the era she's writing in. Um, So she... 
you know there's this kind of this this element of sexuality is very very much tied to um and sort of gender is very much tied to uh biology and and things like that um and also the fact that despite this being about claiming one's own sexuality we still very much get those themes within it of the the blushing virgin the the myth of the breaking of the hymen um you know etc so all of these kind things are still sort of present um but it is a very interesting adaptation um which i think really demonstrates her love of folklore um and the way that she studied it Yeah, I actually really do like what they did with the film, even though uh, some of the effects are <laughs> both disturbing and a little bit shonky now. Um, and it, it's not just the Angela... I mean, it's basically mm. the, the framework is that Angela Carter story, but they give the grandmother a real voice in it. And the grandmother and the daughter don't necessarily agree. And the whole thing is Rosalie, the little Red Riding Hood character, desperately trying... Yeah to work out what it means to grow up and what it means that now boys eyes are following her and she you know she's sort of enjoying the flirtation what's good what's bad uh, there's even a little bit of sibling jealousy even though her sister is killed by wolves so again you've got the metaphor of you know yeah. was she literally killed by wolves were they werewolves obviously they are werewolves in the film um what did, was she did she become a fallen mm-hmm. woman in yeah. some way and in in that terminology of the time because it it skips back and forth between sort of the 1600s and the sort of 1920s 1930s and it's it's just a really interesting piece and she's desperately Mm. running for this life that she wants she kind of wants to run with the wolves and she forgets that the fairy tale has teeth i mean you see at the end that she you know you Mm. feel that she's chosen she's chosen to be one with the wolves and embrace her sexual agency etc and then she wakes up in the bed and the wolves are pouring in around her and she's screaming so that there is terror in it as well yeah absolutely um it's uh, there are so many themes to sort of pick at and again i think that really plays into the way that um angela carter pulls into the, into the folklore and how she allows folklore to be reflective of society we find what we fear within it yeah now definitely. another writer i want to mention is uh max von der grun so he is i think he's a german writer um Zipes did a, a translation, um, but this was a story of the Little Red Cat, which was written in 1974, and it's an incredibly interesting piece in which you have a little girl who is from a well-to-do family, and she's very, very well loved. Um, everyone loves her in the village that she lives in. She's charming. She's an ideal child she's a great student she's very pretty um, and everybody everybody loves her they really really do there's there's no one who dislikes her in any way um however on her seventh birthday she is given a red cap by her grandparents and on the little red cap is a small white star uh, which is very and it's noted to be very expensive 
and they and her her grandparents give her this and she really really loves it she feels it makes her even more beautiful however the moment she gets to school suddenly um the children begin mocking her about the red cap some of them are horrified by it um she starts to be pushed around adults sort of start to ignore her people become envious of her um and not only is she affected but suddenly people start to shun her family um they're talked about badly in the streets um they are refused entry into shops um the neighbors become hostile and in the end uh she is beaten up by a bunch of boys and in doing so she loses her cap um, and they even actually have the line which is that jimmy who's one of the boys who beats her up she says jimmy how come you have such big eyes so that i can see you better but jimmy how come you suddenly have such big ears so that i can hear where you are yes but jimmy how come you have such big hands so i can grab hold of you better and he beats her and throws her into a ditch um and she loses her cap and the moment she loses her cap everything returns to normal um and her mother basically mother basically even says um uh, the past few weeks were like a bad fairy tale and it's one of the most interesting adaptations of little red riding hood because it takes this idea of the wolf and this idea of things are not always what you expect them to be and flips it on its head in which it actually says um the wolf if if one needs to be or rather if one needs to be identified as needs a physical object to be identified as different um then is there any difference between us so it plays on those themes of what makes us stand out what makes a wolf a wolf what makes red yeah. riding hood a victim and of course this is written around the time you know following on from nazi germany uh where obviously uh the jewish people were forced to wear stars to be able to identify them um and to me it speaks of some of the subtle but universal themes within the text itself which is what has made little red riding hood such a long lasting story yeah yeah i would definitely agree with that um over the last sort of well probably 15 years now actually mm. there's been a big push of fairy tales being retold for the young adult market um with varying degrees of success i know i've mentioned some in the past yeah but one that did work for me when i read it and admittedly i read it some time ago is uh, Scarlet by Marissa Meyer, which was part of the Lunar Chronicles. Mm. And in it, you've got Scarlet Benoit, who is a French girl, in um, something in, uh, we're sort of a space-faring um, global type enterprise by that point. So you have a united Europe, you have the united countries of Asia, you have united okay. America, etc. And there is also the lunar colony on the moon and the, the people who live on the moon, which makes it sound really naff, I know. But they, they've, there's been a bit of genetic drift, so they're a bit different. They have developed sort of psychic abilities. Right. Um, this isn't really relevant to Scarlet. Scarlet is basically a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. Um, the wolf 
and Scarlet in this actually forge an alliance. Um, I was kind of annoyed when I read it because I'd been writing something that was very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Whereby the the wolf, and I think he's actually called Wolf, has had some wolf DNA introduced into his, his genetic um, code. So um, this is to make him a more effective cage fighter. And he's basically indentured in that respect. And Scarlet sort of rescues him. Or I think he's initially sent to kill her as to, to work off his indenture and she ends up they end up rescuing each other basically. Obviously there's gonna be a love story there, yeah. you can tell where it's going. Um I just thought it was interesting that the theme Marissa Meyer picked up on was the one that always struck me, which is this sense of kinship mm. between the girl and the wolf. Yeah, that's a really, really, really interesting idea. And obviously the sense yeah. of kinship we we do find it in other versions of the story as well where they are literally yeah. kin yeah yeah definitely so um i i remember really liking the lunar chronicles when i read them and that is quite some time ago and i'm not so great with young adult now because mm. i've probably aged out of it to be fair um but they were really really good fun um the Girl in Red by Christina Henry is, again, it's sort of young adult slash new adult because it's simply <laughs> grim stuff there. No pun intended. Um, it's more recent, and this basically follows... I can't remember the name of the main character now, but I read it really recently. So, obviously, the main character's name did not stick in my head. Um, <laughs> she likes to be called Red, even though that... No, her name's Cordelia, that's it. Her mum was a Shakespeare professor. Right. She doesn't like being called Cordelia. She likes being called Red and she's she wears a red hoodie and it's kind of her signature thing. And it's set in a near future dystopia as everything's happening and a huge virus has swept through and killed off a lot of the population. And her only chance of survival is to get through a hundred miles of woods to her grandmother's house. So again, you have the, the little red riding hood angle and she goes armed with an axe. She is the woodsman mm. as well, effectively. And what she meets on the way is the wolf in other people, the beast within all of us. You put us under pressure like that and we've gone past the point where we're deliberately trying to help each other and instead we're all preying on each other instead. Um, the problem I had with the book was that I feel that Christina Henry writes a little bit to diversity first rather than story first but these characters are diverse yeah. if you see what i mean so that that kind of threw threw me out of the story i didn't feel that she worked as hard on the characterization as on oh well this is a disabled character or this is a black character and i always find that a bit disrespectful this isn't to say it's a bad book it's not but also some of her her morals and her opinions are again thrown in your face and i, I don't find that works for me but the idea mm. of the wolf being everybody, potentially, um, was an interesting one. And uh, while I personally don't think that that's actually what would happen in a dystopian, in fact, we've got loads of evidence to mm. suggest that's not how we work as a species. We just don't. That, that Those are the edge cases. But it was still a very interesting take on, I've got to get to grandmother's house through the woods. Yeah, definitely an interesting case. I've not read it, so I, I can't judge, but uh, it, yeah. it does sound very intriguing. Um, and my last example, Low Red Moon. Again, it's young adults. See, they keep retelling these fairy tales for young <laughs> adults. 
uh, by Ivy Devlin. I have to say, I read this book well over 10 years ago. In fact, if I read it in 2011, that's way more than 10 years ago, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Okay, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked it at the time. I liked the way that she wrote about nature and the woods and stuff. And basically, you've got the main character who comes into town and she starts to think she's, I mean, she loves the woods, she loves being out in the forest, and then she starts to sleepwalk, she starts finding herself in the forest a lot, and she doesn't know why. And all she can remember from when she lived there before, where her parents died, was something silver flashing through the air and blood spraying, so already kind of gory. <laughs> and she starts to think she's kind of losing it, and what, you know, spoiler alert guys, but check this book out because it's kind of cool is the fact that this Little Red Riding Hood character actually is a wolf. She was part of a family of um, wolf shifters who lived in the area. And there is another family who's very much against them who hunt werewolves. And they're not werewolves in the sense that they prey on people. They're werewolves in the sense that mm. you know, they belong to this part of the forest. They're part of nature. Um, and it was a really well done, quite short retelling of the story, in my opinion. Okay, that sounds really, really interesting. And again, I like the idea of sort of them being werewolves because we get that, you know, the the Saxon sort of element coming yeah. in there as well. Um, without without the blood, without drinking. The blood drinking, but yeah, because <laughs> I I think ultimately at the heart of Little Red Riding Hood there is also this kind of discussion about nature itself. Um, and perhaps one could argue yeah. it's not necessarily about sex, but about the violence of nature, the trickery of nature, that nature can come into your homes. I mean, I, I think that you could very easily tell a, a version of Little Red Riding Hood, for example, which is about COVID, you know, bringing the wolf into your, into your grandmother's home yeah. and stuff like that because you've strayed from the path or, you know, something like that. Um, because what does the wolf represent? The wolf represents what we happen to fear. Um, and in that way, you can also then say, actually, um, are we seeing wolves where there aren't wolves? It's just, there's so much diversity to what you can use the story to explain or to examine. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of our take on Little Red Riding Hood. Um, before we wrap up, have we ever used any of these themes ourselves? Well, I have to say I picked Little Red Riding Hood because I am writing book 10 of Harker and Blackthorn and fairy tales are a huge part mm. in that book. And obviously I get a mention on Little Red Riding Hood at some point because there are themes from that that I really do want to yes. use. And that is as much as I can say about it. Similarly, um, I obviously draw on fairy tales a great deal. Um, and I have written some poetry with regards to fairy tales, which I've not shared with anyone, but I might do in the future. But there are elements of Little Red Riding Hood in one of the books that I've written that I cannot provide any details for at the moment. Um, but I think anyone who's... I mean, anyone listening to this episode will understand how much I love the story in terms of its potential and how it can be used. So I don't think it will surprise anyone that I've I've been using it. The whole idea of straying from the path and not being allowed to rescue yourself is a theme in Summer's Lease, which is Megan's novella in the Harker and Blackthorn series, which is coming out very soon. Oh, 
so excited. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I do mention it in there. Megan even has a little rant about, you know, we we have this particular version of fairy tales thrust on us and we're not allowed fairy tales for anyone who doesn't fit in certain categories kind of thing. So she has a little internal rant just to warn you guys <laughs> that it's there. Um, but yeah, once again, it, it is looking at someone who is very lost in their own life and their way of getting unlost is to find someone who is even more yeah. lost kind of thing. That's as much as I can say without giving stuff yeah. away. Interested in uh, in finding out more about that. Well, that is us for today. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. And please do let us know whether you are a fan of this new series idea, just in terms of us exploring uh, other fairy tales and things like that. If there's any fairy tales you'd love for us to discuss as well. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, Jules, you've got one for us. Yes, I have. I would like to recommend a book that I think I raved to Madeline about quite recently. Um, I'm just trying to find the author name, but it's uh, Wild and Wicked Things by, mm. I want to say Francesca May. I'm pretty damn sure it's Francesca May. Uh, should have been more prepared on this bit. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, Francesca May. See, my brain was not deceiving me. And <laughs> it, it's basically billed as a sapphic uh, Great Gatsby retelling slash alternate history. Now, honestly, I didn't get Great Gatsby from it at all because even with the swanky parties and things that are happening, um, it just doesn't feel like Great Gatsby to me. But it does feel like a queer retelling of the film of Practical Magic. And okay, some of the beats are very similar, but the writing is beautiful and the romance and the fact that this is essentially a bunch of damaged people who are kind of finding their way to um, building themselves back up again is really interesting. Um, the premise is that a young woman from a fishing village who has never really known her father properly discovers he's dead and that he's left his estate on Crow Island to her and she just doesn't want the life that's mapped out ahead of her by her mother's kin so she goes to his house to sort things out and then is horrified to find out that actually he was a witch. And the problem with it is that after the Great War, because the opposing side used the occult mm. in ways that were really horrific against uh, you know, the British and French armies, etc., um, witchcraft was absolutely outlawed so it is very much like that there is a prohibition on it is the word they right. use so very much like the failed prohibitions on alcohol <laughs> and things but people are still doing illegal if you like bootleg witchcraft <laughs> and one of the places they're doing it is this great house which is next to her father's place um this great country house and they throw these huge swanky parties where they drink champagne and they dance till dawn kind of thing and fortunes are allegedly told in back rooms and on the surface it's a case of oh no no it's all just glamour but actually there is witchcraft going on underneath as well that is very cool and it is really cool and it turns into kind of a murder mystery as well but also it's a recreation of the past and you've got the two do you've got a dual viewpoint so you've got the the woman who comes to her father's house and you've got a young woman who is behind throwing these huge parties and they're on an absolute collision course with each other and 
I just found it a, a, a really sweet, believable and not too saccharine type love story. And there's definitely stuff that gets in the way. It's very good. Okay, thank you very much. Well. I, I'm really looking forward to checking that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.